Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad, rubber-coated hardware for a better fit, and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. Demacek puts Cole Custer into the wall. They both stay on the throttle. Now they're beginning to crash. One truck goes sliding wildly. One truck is in the air. Matt Crafton upside down. The Motor Racing Network presents the tough trucks of NASCAR. 25 years and still trucking. Get the line. Mike Skinner wins it by two one-hundredths of a second. He was too bullheaded to let me pass him, and I was too bullheaded to let him have it. Brendan Gunn wins in his own backyard at the Las Vegas. Fans were in. We partied in the race shop for hours. It was a wild party night. Now here's Sprague going for second. He and Hornaday come together. Now Hornaday goes around, slams into the wall. To this day, he can't tell me if I ever spun him out. Because I can save it better than him. I told you he was going to yeah. play that bad. <laughs> I told you. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Mike Bagley. Welcome to Episode 3 of MRN Presents the Tough Trucks of NASCAR. 25 years and still trucking. I'm your host, Mike Bagley. In the previous two episodes... We've detailed the inception of the truck series, a landmark occasion back in 1995. We also talked about some of the best legends in truck series history. This week, we talk about another important date in truck series history. February 18th in the year 2000. Prior to Y2K, the truck series had primarily spent most of its time on the short tracks of America with a few road courses and an occasional super speedway sprinkled in. But as the series grew in the first five years of its existence, so too did the demand of NASCAR's tough trucks. At the time the sanctioning body felt the series needed to become more mainstream, what better way to do that than to bring the trucks to the birthplace of NASCAR, Daytona? Richard Petty wins the Daytona 500. Banging for second to the stripe. Dale Earnhardt is going to win the Daytona 500 in his 20th try. Mike Helton was NASCAR's chief operating officer at the time. In November of 2000, he was promoted to president. And he says the sanctioning body needed to take the next step. And Daytona was it. Well, it, it, it came from the evolution and the series itself somewhat maturing. So in a four or five year window, the truck series had had proven itself, quite frankly. Um, it was originally designed to be a short track series and, and participate. Uh, and, and its character is still built around that, the, 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 the short track, I think, ambiance of it is still very much in its DNA. Uh, but the, the truck owners and the participants in the garage area uh, was pushing us to do something that was significant for them uh, that they could hang their hat on. You know, they they really liked racing at the short tracks, whether it was Martinsville or Evergreen or Mesa Moran or Bakersfield or wherever. Uh, but they needed, they needed a boost in uh, their commercial relationships and and so the conversation kind of went around and says, what if we were part of Speed Weeks? What if the truck series was part of the inventory of what NASCAR did around Daytona during Speed Weeks? The majority of the racers were excited. And coming off of a nine-win season, Greg Biffle knew the draw Daytona could bring to the series. Man, I'll tell you what, I, I, it was incredible to be there 
in those trucks. And I remember testing there in 99 when NASCAR took us there to test. And, man, it was... I'll tell you what, I'll never forget that. It was just... It was so exciting to be there and be part of that, but yet it was scary because those things were were difficult to drive on that on that racetrack. And again, I got very lucky that I was with a team like Roush Fenway because I got an opportunity to drive Mark Martin's car at Talladega and test for them when he was having back surgery. So I got an opportunity just to make some laps on big racetracks, not in a racing condition, but got a got a look at it. And then that test in '99. Um, certainly helped us get ready for that, but I tell you, it it was uh, it was something exciting to be uh, be part of. The 1998 champion Ron Hornaday wasn't as excited as Biffle, but praised NASCAR for making it work. And I wasn't racing it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. And really? That, oh, I just you know I, I've never seen him on a super speedway. And I, I guess with what they they've done their homework in the wind tunnel, I mean, because the second year I got to drive Ricky Hendrick's truck there, and the thing was just planted. And I, I I think I ran ten laps and went over there and praised NASCAR what they've done. They slowed them down just enough. They made them drivable. They they, they were fun to do it. That they they wiggle down the straightaway. You just you're in a you're following a semi down the road. The yeah. thing wiggling. After making six starts in 1999, Rick Corelli joined the series full-time again in 2000. He was excited to begin his year racing Daytona for the first time. Well, the biggest thing is, you know, is obviously, you know, racing on short tracks growing up in the Midwest and doing what in out west where we raced at. You know, you go to Daytona, you know that you finally made it when the trucks go there. You know, I think they had a lot of different issues when they were going to go there with the first time of running them or not running them. You know, are they... You know, how fast they're going to go or whatever. You know, I got an opportunity to drive one of Kevin's trucks. It was a number six truck, which was the number that I always had. And we uh, so we went out there and we're running, you know. And the next thing I know, we're at, look up the top of the sheet. And, you know, here we are up there at the top. And it was 200-some miles an hour. And then they came down and they changed the, the snorkels on the front of the motor so you could choke them down. But the truck program getting there, it was awesome. But you went to a whole different area where you had to have you know, wind tunnel stuff, a lot of uh, experience, a lot of things that was different. And it was different for a lot of people that didn't run Daytona, you know. But it was awesome. I mean, when we got there, it was uh, it, it was something that was very neat. It was no doubt going to be a great addition to Speed Weeks 2000. Dale Jarrett won the Bud Shootout qualifier and the Bud Shootout to start Speed Weeks. Bobby Labonte hits the wall. Ricky Rudd spins. Here they come to the stripe as Rudd's car turns over on its roof. Dale Jarrett wins the Bud Shootout from the last starting spot. And on Friday, February 18th, the tough trucks finally made it to Daytona. The following is a presentation of MRN Radio, the voice of NASCAR 2000. Speed Weeks 2000 continues today with a milestone race, the inaugural NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series event at the Daytona International Speedway. While the trucks have raced on fast mile-and-a-half and and two-mile speedways often, Daytona will be the biggest and fastest track the series has visited yet, and all indications are it's going to be a race to remember. Joe Moore called turn one for MRN that day, and he describes the height ahead of time. Yeah, it was a big deal. You know, we'd never seen the trucks on that big of a track before. Uh, and to, to get the opportunity to see what they would do out there in the draft, and, of course, we saw practice and qualifying leading up to the race, but nobody knew exactly what to expect once the race began. And I think what happened is everybody fell in love with the way those things raced on the super speedway. Uh, they just did things and, and were able to manipulate the draft much better than the cars were. 
As MRN's Dave Moody explains, there was so much anticipation surrounding the event. Secondary to the actual race, I just remember the buildup and the hype and excitement in advance of the, the first green flag. It was something totally new and totally different. I don't think any of us had, had really ever seen anything like that before. There are very few times in history where you can say, you know, I knew in advance that I was about to see something that had never been seen before. And the excitement factor that day was sky high because of that. One of the biggest challenges for NASCAR was to get the trucks to drive right with the fast speeds at Daytona. Truck Series Director Wayne Auten was tasked with that job. We did a lot of different combinations that uh, when we first were going to Daytona. I'll never forget, uh, I flew to Daytona with the France family and uh, John Graham on the company plane to go do the test. And uh, when I stepped off the plane, uh, the three people that I was uh, flying with said, you got one job to do this weekend. I said, okay, what's that? And he says, keep them plates off them trucks and a few other words with it. So we went to work and put a ton of drag on them, you know, and and put the big spoiler, the bat wing, as we all called yeah. it, on them. Yeah, we wanted them planted on the racetrack, but I'll never forget Richard Childers. He, he was on one of the trailers, and one of the guys said he was grabbing his leg, well, listen to them engines, man. That's the way they're supposed to sound at Daytona, you know, and um, – then we went to snorkels. We didn't have uh, air induction into them. And then we nope. took a snorkel off of them right in the middle of the, the event to slow them down a little bit. And I guess the rest is history. The idea not to add restrictor plates to the trucks excited the competitors, says Jeff Bodine. Well, I thought it was a, a great, great idea to go to Daytona with the trucks. Uh, you know, everyone thought, well, they're big and boxy. They won't go fast, so it'll be just fine. And uh, so there wasn't any plans to run a restrictor plate on the engines, which, you know, I love. I hated those restrictor plates. I still do. But so we went down there. We were faster than the cup cars. It was awesome. They might have been fun to drive, but the trucks were still challenging, according to Dennis Setzer. Uh, that was really cool. Didn't know what the trucks were going to do there at Daytona. It was a really cool deal. Trucks drove they, they did not drive good. I mean, as far as I didn't feel like they I'd done a lot of testing in that area for uh, Bill Elliott and the cup cars and stuff. And the trucks didn't drive near as good as the cup cars. They were out of control and stuff. Uh, they drafted terrible as far as if you got to try to bump some draft someone with a truck. The front bumper of the truck went under the back bumper of the truck, and it just lifted the rear tires. There was no extension on the shock. So as soon as you touched that guy, you had his rear tires off the ground. And uh, I think I had Rick Crawford flip right over the top of my truck. I touched him one time off, too, and flipped right over the top of my truck. Didn't really touch my truck and flipped him right over the top. And he landed back on his wheels and drove back to the pit area at Daytona. But... uh, Daytona's a cool place. The first time we went there with Keselowski and them, uh, I think we led that race like four or five times. It had like four flat right rear tires. It kept cutting right rear tires down for some reason. Had a very, very good truck, and I don't guess I ever had a truck that good there when I went back to Daytona. Mike Wallace pumped up about today's race. He'll start second, barely missed the pole. Got a good, strong truck, a good, solid crew, and he's got another big plus in his corner, too. He's got tons of experience on the high-speed tracks like Daytona. We, we qualified second to Joe Rutman. We were uh, our crew chiefs. Uh, at the time, Tim Cahooth was crew chief in my two truck, and Matt Pusha, who's over at Roush today, was a bodybuilder, and uh, 
Joe Rutman was driving for Bobby Hamilton, and we the guys on both teams went there with the same mindset. There was uh, there was a lot of liberal rules back in the day, so we took the narrowest, smallest truck we could take to the racetrack, and they wouldn't let you tape off the grill or anything to qualify. And we seen what the eighteen car was doing, so we did the same thing: was hiding, you know, putting some stuff behind the grill to get the speed. And here we qualify first and second, uh, you know, and raced against Rutman years ago. So it was kind of a cool deal. Wallace also remembers saluting the fans while taking the green for the first time in Daytona. And I remember coming off of turn three. I was right in the middle of turn three. I was on the high side, of course, coming to the green flag. And I keyed the radio up, and I go, well, Smith, from the desert to Daytona, here you go. And that was just the one phrase I remember that 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 started that race, from the desert to Daytona. And we're about set for the start of the NASCAR Craftman Truck Series 250 here at Daytona. First time they've ever run at this speedway. Tested well in the wintertime. Green flag goes in the air, and we're underway. The race was exciting. Three deep in turn one for the lead. Hamilton gets the lead. Just behind him now is Mike Wallace, who looks down to the low side for a chance to make a move. Further back, Joe Rutman and Bobby Hamilton. Now one truck breaks loose, coming into the banking, down to the inside of the racetrack. Three, four trucks involved. Unreal racing here in the truck competition this morning. Again, we may have a challenge for the lead as they swing down to the line. They jockey. Oh, in trouble is Kurt Busch down on the apron of the racetrack. He got bumped a little bit, skidded down. What a job of saving that truck. Then another collision. Man, I I think I crashed five times that day. Going to send four more trucks out to the infield. The draft was insane on how fast they would pull up to the other truck in front of you. Man, I I had to start in the back. We were in a backup truck because we had landed in some oil and and spun around and and got some damage on our primary truck. I didn't know anything other than just push the pedal down and go to the front. I I think I wiped out a few guys on my way there. Um, I spun through the infield at one point when Biffle was on my radio trying to tell me to draft with him. I mean, I was in way over my head. Kurt Busch tried to make a move for the lead, lost control of his truck in the trioval. He went down into the grass, came back up on the pavement without getting himself in any harm. Everything was going right, and suddenly things went very wrong. Contact, Morgan into Bush. Now trucks crashing along the outside wall. One truck spinning and crashing and tumbling from the trioval down towards turn number one. Upside down, flames shooting from the machine as it's hit by another machine as a nasty crash in traffic in the trioval has put us under caution. It was a horrific crash for Jeff. The most seriously hurt machine was uh, the Jeffrey Bodine truck, which went upside down, had the rear end housing ripped out of it, most of the sheet metal ripped off of it. Bodine remembers everything vividly. Coming down the front straightaway, a little tangle up with some trucks, and I ended up flying up in the fence about 109 miles an hour and flipped and ripped the front of the truck off. Engine flew down the track, ripped the top off the roll cage. The whole front was gone. Other, another truck ran into me, spun around some more. Pretty spectacular wreck, but I, I'm very blessed to be alive. There's no question. I, you shouldn't have been able to survive that wreck. But the Lord reached down there, there's no question in my mind. He reached down there and protected me. And uh, I'm still here, and I raced after that, and it's, it's really a miracle that uh, I've survived. Well, we're with Todd Bodine. Todd, you've been over with your brother over at Halifax Hospital. Give us an update. Brett and myself were standing on our my motorhome in the infield in the driver's lot watching a race. You know, Jeff was doing really well. And remember, <clears throat> you can't see the front straightaway in from the driver's lot. So we'd watch him come off a of four, and then we'd turn, and we'd wait for him down for one and two. 
And remember, all of a sudden it got quiet. We're like, oh boy, this is not good. And the motorhome that was next to us, next to us had their TV on outside the, the motorhome. We looked down and said, oh man, that's a bad wreck. That, that's Somebody's hurt bad here. And we knew it was going to be a while, so we climbed down and went over the TV. And, you know, we're trying to figure out who it is. And, of course, there's nothing left in the truck. You can't see the truck. So then they, they, they said Jeff's name. And that's really probably the last thing I remember. Uh, I think we both went into shock, you know, because we, we, we'd said right before that, whoever's, whoever's in that truck's dead. I mean, there's no way they survived this. I mean, this is the most worst wreck ever in NASCAR history, if not, you know. So went into shock, and uh, I drove us over to the hospital. Um, we went, I think we went to the infield care center, and then they said he would. They were going right to the hospital. We went. I we got in my car. I think it was my car. I don't. I don't really remember much of this that well. And drove us over to the hospital, and just me and Brett. By the time we got over there, well, I think our wives were with us. By the time we got over there, he was already there and already been checked out. And of course, we're white as a ghost, ready to cry. And the doctor comes out and he says, "You guys want to talk to him?" We're like. Are you kidding me? He's okay? Doctor, yep. Nothing wrong with him. Not a broken bone, nothing. Uh, but he said, I'm going to warn you, he looks ugly. And, of course, sigh relief. My God, Lord was looking after us here. Went in there to see him, and I'm not kidding you, there was not one single part of his body that wasn't black and blue. It was the, it was the awfulest thing I've ever seen. The most incredible thing I ever seen. I mean, not one part of his body, his cheeks, his eyes were just black, just black and blue all around his eyes. His forehead, I mean, his ears were discolored. You know, and then they, you could see a little of his chest. He pulled the thing down, and, and his chest and his arms, everything's black and blue. It's like, my God, I mean, that had to hurt. And uh, so after I saw him, I went out and I dealt with the press. And of course, there's a big bunch of press there, and... Praise the Lord, he was fine. I couldn't believe it. So we, we got lucky there. Kurt Busch details the crash from his perspective. That move on the front straightaway, I was right in the middle of going in the middle lane through the tri-oval. And one of the guys, either I changed lanes or he came down a little bit. And then Bodine ended up in the worst spot. Uh, what a horrific crash. Uh, and it, it changed the course of the way that the trucks were looked at in Daytona. And I'm just glad everybody was okay from that wreck. And... We got minimal damage and came back and finished second in my first ever truck race. So it was pretty wild. Here's Greg Biffle. When I first saw it, um, I, I knew Jeff was going to be okay, but I was super concerned about the people in the grandstands when I initially saw it. You know, because it, from my point of view, it looked way worse than it was. It was bad, mm-hmm. but I couldn't really tell how it turned out. I couldn't tell how it finished. What's it like being a race car driver, seeing something like that in the rearview mirror, and you go under the red flag, they've got to repair the fence. And we were under the red flag for a couple of hours, I think. Yes. And then you're just sitting there, and you're just, like, waiting to go back and finish this. You look over there, and you see what had happened. How do you put that out of your mind, knowing, first of all, this is the first time that the trucks have been on Daytona, you had a horrible crash, and now you've got a lot of time to sit there and think about what you can do to win the race, but also also in the back of your mind, knowing what just happened with that guy that yeah. ended up in the fence. Yeah, it's like, are we doing, are we 
doing the right thing here. And and the other thing is, is just, you know, recognize from that mistake, you know, you learn from people's mistakes. And and I wouldn't say it was it was Jeff's mistake or someone else's. Just pay attention to what happened there in that condition or that scenario and try and avoid that or or do what you can. You know, you get outside somebody down that short shoot or whatever happens, be a little bit more cautious through that area. Um, so something like that doesn't happen again. Under the lengthy red flag delay to repair the fence and clean up the accident, the leader at the time, Mike Wallace, gathered a group together and spent time with fans. The uniqueness was we were all stopped off of turns four between the short shoot, and all the drivers were sitting against the wall while they were cleaning up the, the wreck from Jeff Bodine, and all of a sudden fans started migrating down to the end. And they're all waving at us, doing this and that. And Andy Houston, myself, we got up and we walked across the racetrack and started signing autographs during the red flag situation. To those who are still involved in the race, their machines have been stopped out on the racetrack, away from the pit area. And I remember, like a week later, some NASCAR officials telling me they they, they were awed what they seen. We were, we're clearing up this horrible wreck down here. They look at the other end. They can't figure. They see kind of an onslaught of people going in. Here is the drivers out signing autographs for the people against the fence. While the sanctioning body had every right to panic, Mike Helton and his team did not have a knee-jerk reaction to the situation. Yeah, I think the conversations around whether or not the trucks could participate on Daytona was well vented out before we ever put them on there. Uh, And the Jeff Bodine accident in that race is not unsimilar from ARCA, NASCAR, Baby Grand, IMSA, anything else that runs in Daytona. So um, the the conversation wasn't about, well, maybe, you know, the trucks don't belong in Daytona. That had already been sorted out. Yes, they can race there, and yes, we can. Uh, the, the conversation was more in step with all conversations after an incident like that. How can you make the vehicle safer? How can you make the fence safer? How can you do those things? And it was another uh, moment of a race vehicle at a racetrack. Uh, it wasn't about the trucks, uh, their ability or not not having the ability. They, we'd already done all that before we even put them on a the racetrack. After a lengthy red flag, the race resumed. And we're ready to get back to it. 60 laps complete, 40 laps to go. Dennis Setzer dives for the pits as the green goes in the air. And it was Mike Wallace who emerged victorious. They're still side by side battling for second. Mike Wallace in the second spot. Here he comes. Wallace has one more shot left. He goes high. He goes way high. Houston stays low. Houston by a nose. Houston by a truck length off turn four. And Wallace is challenging back. Houston gets out of control off turn four has to lift and correct mike wallace passes him in the short straight here they come to the checkered flag mike wallace wins at daytona a last lap pass on andy houston houston got the truck cocked sideways in turn four had to gather it back up and that's what wallace needed to go by and take the checkered flag what a finish to the Craftsman Truck Series 250. A lot of people won numerous truck races at Daytona since then, but as I tell them, they never won the inaugural one. So I think it did a lot for the sport in general. I know uh, the, the Cup Series, the management in NASCAR looked at the races that was going on in Daytona, and they described it as one of the best races there in ages. And uh, so I think we did a lot for the, uh, you know, the Truck Series did a lot for NASCAR. Since that day, the trucks have been a mainstay during Daytona Speed Weeks. Daytona has played host to some memorable races in the truck series, including some wild finishes as well. Jack Sprague powers by by inches. 
at the start-finish line. Talk about a photo finish. It was Christopher Bell who went barrel-rolling down the uh, short shoot between the trioval and turn number one. Christopher Bell with a wild ride. Here comes Sautern out of the outside. That's where he's been strong and trucks are out of control as they head off to turn one. One truck flipping end over end, side by side, barrel rolling down a number of other machines. Sauter with no drafting help. Everyone's leaning on each other off turn two. And now they're beginning to crash. One truck goes sliding wildly. One truck is in the air. Matt Crafton upside down comes back on all fours. Next week on MRN Presents, the tough trucks of NASCAR, 25 years and still trucking, we'll cover the greatest finishes in truck series history as heard here on the Motor Racing Network. Until then, I'm Mike Bagley. Have a great week. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The Tough Trucks of NASCAR, 25 years and still trucking, was written and produced by Tyler Burnett. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, underage sale prohibited. Introducing Zone Nicotine Pouches, the perfect balance of unparalleled comfort, longer-lasting flavor, and nicotine that satisfies. Whether you're zoning in during the race or zoning out after a tough day at work, Zone gets you there faster and keeps you there longer. Available in seven flavors and in six and nine milligram strengths. Find Zone at zonepouches.com and retailers near you. Own your Zone with Zone Nicotine Pouches.